sometimes we come across a passage that jumps out at us and strikes us suddenly like we've never seen it before. And in my circumstance, fills my heart with great joy and gladness almost to the weeping point. You know, men have long erected great buildings and temples to their gods. This is an organizing principle that seems to permeate all of mankind. And to our eyes, some of them are garish and ugly and even almost demonic looking. But to their eyes, they are a suitable house of worship, a suitable place for their gods to take up residence, a suitable glorification, if you will, by the creature of his so-called God. Men do this to please their gods, sometimes to propitiate their gods, to satisfy some unspoken demand by their gods, to lay claim to their gods as if to nail him down to that place and time, to make him to dwell with them in some sense, to offer sacrifice. And sometimes, or many times, we know, of course, that the real beneficiaries are the priesthood who get to live in high style and lord it over the people. But these are often buildings of great beauty, uh, majesty, gold, and finery. But sooner or later, the thing built by men becomes the real thing they worship. Not is it built so much to their God, and no longer is He so much worshipped as their temple becomes a thing of worship. In reality, it becomes a substitute idol for the idolatrous God that they claim to adhere to. A parallel thing about these temples and cathedrals and great buildings is that they become a way to box God up, to box God in to their cathedral and temple, and thus he becomes excluded from their daily life. In a sense, you see, we are safe from God so long as we are away from his temple. But when we go into his presence, quote-unquote, in this great cathedral, we, we have to clean up our act, don't we? We have to put on hypocrisy, and we have to dress in finery, And we have to go about pretending that we are holy before our God and can't wait till the moment when we can escape back out into our life, back out into the world. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David gets an idea to build God a temple. Now David, of course, was a man after God's own heart. David wasn't worshiping a false god or a demon, but rather he worshiped the one true God. But you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we read the first half of this morning, we read this, it came to pass when the king sat in his house 
and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. But much later, when Jesus came, the temple had been made into an idol and was corrupted with money and commerce and outright thievery. And we read this Lord's Day of what Jesus did at the beginning of His ministry, how He cleansed the temple. And the Jews were so fixated with the glories of their temple that they couldn't see the glories of Christ. Think about it. Here is the King of glory, the Lord Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh, visiting a temple, and they thought God dwelt in the temple when actually God dwelt in the Lord Jesus by incarnation. He is the God-man walking among us. But they valued the temple and disregarded the Lord of glory in their midst. They couldn't see the glories of Christ. Why He had no gold or silver or bright rays of sunshine emanating from Him. And we know He had all those things, but they were veiled for the purposes of the incarnation. The Jews were so fixated with the glories of the temple, they couldn't see the glories of Christ. Do you remember what Isaiah said? When we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Oh, they had great desire for their temple and for the worship at the temple and for the, the priests and all the beautiful garments and the gold and the silver and the trumpets and the sacrifices. They had a great desire for those things, but no desire unto the Messiah. God manifest in the flesh in their midst and it says in John's Gospel, the second chapter, that they demanded a sign when Christ cleansed the temple. What is your proof of who you say you are? At verse 19 of John 2, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of His body. When therefore He was risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this unto them. And they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. Notice that these Jews confused their temple in which they falsely supposed God dwelt with the body of the Lord Jesus in which the fullness of deity left. Think about it. Jesus was saying, destroy my body. Put me to death and in three days I'll raise it up again. They thought, He said, destroy this grand and marvelous temple and in three days I'll build it back. Which was the more important? Which was the more glorious? Which was the more astounding? Why, it was the raising of Christ from the grave that was important, that was astounding. And yet they were fixated 
on the security and safety and permanence of their beloved physical temple and not concerned at all with the body of Christ being destroyed by them in their midst. And yet, He would rise again the third day. You know, the body of the Lord Jesus, as I said, includes the fullness of deity. The fullness of deity dwells in our Lord Jesus. You see, they would have guarded and protected their temple, but they slew Christ. The real living place, if you will, of God among men. And in Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, we read the sorry tale of how they targeted the Lord Jesus for destruction. You remember it says the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put Him to death and found none. And there arose certain and bare false witness against Him saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. Notice how they changed the words of the Lord Jesus to make it fit they supposed their false testimony. You see, not only did they disregard the body of Christ as the true resting place or house, if you will, or God in the flesh, but they were confused about their confusion. They thought He was talking about the temple, the physical temple, which they so idolized They thought the true temple of God was the one they had built and not the body that God had clothed His dear Son with in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. But then notice they move quite casually from this confusion over the temple and what is its purpose and who dwells therein and which temple is Christ speaking of. They move immediately to the destruction of the true temple of God, the Lord Jesus, to His destruction. And we read in verse 61, again the high priest asked Him and said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we of any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him, to say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. You see, he is Messiah. He declared the truth to them. He is the Lord of glory incarnate. He is that Son promised by the psalmist in Psalm 2. Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool in Psalm 110. And yet they denied Him and set about insulting, degrading, and destroying Him right there. They would have punished severely anyone who spit upon and buffeted and blasphemed their precious temple, but they themselves spit upon buffeted blasphemed and sought to destroy 
the Lord Jesus, his very body and blood in which the fullness of Godhead dwells. It seems that nothing about the Lord Jesus could compare with their great temple, what they thought was God's house. But the Scriptures tell us otherwise, don't they? It is not the building or the temple where God dwells. It is in His dear Son incarnate in His humanity. In Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter, remember those sweet verses of promise to the Lord Jesus' adopted Father. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, A virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So here at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, even before he was born, this truth that in the body of the Lord Jesus is God manifest in our midst, walking amongst us, God with us, In Hebrews, the writer is constantly exalting Jesus in His body and for His work in His body above all that is the Jewish temple. In fact, the argument is that Christ is better than the temple. Christ has a better house than the house that Moses was a servant of. Christ's sacrifice is better than any of the temple sacrifices. His priesthood is better than the priesthood exercised by the Aaronic line in the temple of God. And He dwells in glory in a place not made with hands unlike their precious Jewish temple. And we read of this, of course, in Hebrews 1. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spoken time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here is a declaration by the writer of Hebrews that Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He's the brightness of His glory. He's the express image of the Godhead. You see how much superior is the incarnate Son of God to any temple that we might have any notion of God dwelling in. For in the body of the Lord Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Paul says, in another place. The lowliness of Christ in the incarnation is declared, yet His work in the body is shown to be 
our very salvation. And this comes, of course, in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, where we read, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And so Christ was clothed in a body. Why? So that He might have a body in which to suffer death in the place of His people. And He's crowned with glory and honor thereby. His sacrifice is His great glory. Not the sacrifices offered in the temple where it was opposed God dwells, but rather the sacrifice of the body in which God dwells. The Lord of glory. The second person of the Godhead incarnate. For it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. And here is the remarkable humility of Christ. The condescension of Christ. That He should be made like the creatures whom He would redeem on the cross. He should be made like us, yet should be God manifest in the flesh before us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death for all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Not the nature of angels. I think the Jewish people would have been much more pleased if Jesus had shown up bright and splendorous like the angels of old times, radiating this powerful brightness and with this great power over all the world and separate and apart from His people whom He would save. Perhaps they would have been more satisfied with that. Perhaps in that image, they might have seen some beauty with which they could desire Him. But no, they took on Himself the seed of Abraham. He was made like His brethren. And yet in that person, in that body, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now perhaps this confusion by the Jewish people between the temple building and the person of Messiah and which is more important and which is more glorious and in which truly dwells God amongst His people and His great sacrificial work not in the physical temple but in the body of His flesh. Perhaps it began innocently enough in David's mind when he decided he ought to build a house for God to dwell in. But if you recall, God objected to this when Nathan is sent back to set David right. At 2 Samuel 7 at verse 4, 
came to pass that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt. Did I ever speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? But God flips the narrative back on David. God tells David that he will assign a place for his people Israel to dwell and he will build David a house. He promises to build David a house. Not a palace, not a temple. But you see there is this verbal sleight of hand, if you will. Rather that he will build David a dynasty a reign, and a throne. And it's as if God is telling David, you don't need to be wrapped up in this idea of buildings, physical buildings. A house can indicate other more substantial and important and glorious things than a bare temple covered with gold and beautiful ornaments. God promises to build him a house. And a place for Israel. Verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. So here is a promise, and later on he says that Solomon will build for God a house. Look at what it says in verse 13. Solomon, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice that the house that Solomon will build, it doesn't say that it's a house for God to dwell in, does it? It says that it's a house for God's name. Now in the promise to David of a kingdom and a throne was the promise of the true dwelling place of God with His people. That is the incarnation of God in the person of Messiah. The promised Son to come out of the loins of David. This was a pointer to the true house of God, if you will, amongst the Lord's people. The Lord Jesus manifests God in the flesh and walking amongst His people. Not boxed up in some beautiful temple, for that would be a pointless exercise. You might have noticed though, as we read those texts, some phrases that I left out. And they are the ones that simply broke my heart with rejoicing as I sat there and read them. I've read them many, many times, but I never noticed this before. God told Nathan to tell David this. Verse 5 again. Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, 
even to this day, and now mark this phrase, but I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, God had always walked with His people. Not in a temple, but rather in a tent, in a tabernacle. That was the way in which God walked amongst His people. And you remember, as they moved about from place to place during the wilderness years, and as they progressed from Egypt or from Mount Sinai unto the promised land, there was that tabernacle. And it was a portable thing. It wasn't a house. It was portable. It was made of animal skins and of fine linens. That could, of course, have been a picture of the flesh, you see. And it had those bones, it had those poles, and it had those boards, and those rods, and those sockets. And it had various items of furniture in there. You see, this was the way in which God walked with His people, not in a permanent house of stone or a temple or a cathedral or what have you. You see, the image of Christ to come is revealed in God walking with His people in a tent. A very apt image of the body of Christ. And of course, the old Plymouth Brethren would wax multiple books of commentaries uh, bringing out all the typical imagery of the tabernacle and its furnishings as it relates to Christ. But it is a distinction between a house, a fixed place. It is a reminiscent or pointing to a body of flesh and of bones in which one day the, the Lord of glory in the incarnation would walk with His people in this earth. Is a very apt image of the body of Christ. God clothed upon, as it were, with the animal skins and the fabrics of the tabernacle pointing to that day when Christ would clothe His Son in the flesh and bones of mankind and walk amongst us as God with us. You see the tension, God, the dwell versus what the Lord has ordained should be the way in which God should dwell with His people one day. Look back to what the Lord said about His tabernacle. If we go back to Exodus 25, you see more particularly the way in which God dwelled in the tabernacle of old. At verse 8 of Exodus 25, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, the Lord tells Moses. And then he describes the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and all the gold that plates it and the cherubim that are atop facing toward the mercy seat that's set in the top of the Ark. And we know that it was on that mercy seat 
was the place of propitiation where the blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled to take away the wrath, to make an atonement for the sins of the people before God. And then look what it says at verse 21. Thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And then look at verse 22. There I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee there from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim of the ark of the testimony. So it is that we do not meet with Christ in a cathedral or a great temple or a fine building or amongst great choirs and organs and altars and priests decked with their apparel or sculptures or idols or flags or great halls in which there is the suitable echo of worship as man sees it. We can meet God anywhere, but we don't particularly meet Him in those types of places because that's not where God dwells amongst His people. Of the Lord Jesus, we must remember that He said that the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. Christ was not all about some sort of physical structure that He could dwell in or that He could meet with His people. And you will search high and low in the New Testament and you will not find a place where the Scriptures tell us to build cathedrals or temples or great houses of worship as if there should be some special glorious place in which we could box in our God and go to meet with Him there. No. Christ walks with His people. He is amongst us in His own flesh. In His own blood. You see, communing with God is not about temples and buildings and golden churches. It's about meeting Christ. Meeting Him at the mercy seat where His body was sacrificed to take away our sin. That is where we commune with the Lord Jesus. Not in a building, not in a temple, but rather around His people and around His table. We meet Him at His table. And we meet Him symbolically. You see, He has designated not gold or silver boxes. The Roman Catholics call those tabernacles, if you remember. That's not where... God dwells in those man-made symbols of idolatry and the blasphemous mass. No. His body and blood by humble, ordinary, and common symbols displayed before us. That's where we meet our God. That's where we meet our precious Redeemer. Around this table, in the face of these symbols that picture for us that body and that blood in which the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells for us. We are not in a great cathedral or temple, but God dwells with His people in the flesh and blood of Jesus which He offered up for us 
on Calvary's tree. And He is with us in our hearts and by these symbols which point to our God who walks with us even today. Christ, the true tabernacle of God, walks with His people. Oh, let us around this table perceive the body of Christ as the true house of God. And one day we shall see Him again in His body with our own eyes, won't we? That's the promise. That's the promise. Let's not confuse what really matters. Let's not confuse the dwelling place of God in Christ Jesus with any so-called temples or cathedrals or buildings or boxes or altars or what have you. But we meet around this table and we meet in His name and we discern His body amongst us and we feed upon His body and His blood. And in that body and blood in which dwells God Himself in the flesh is all of our life, all of our hope, all of our destiny, all of our salvation. And it reminds me of the words that Isaac Watts penned His dying crimson like a robe spread o'er His body on the tree. And I am dead to all the globe and all the world is dead to me. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table. Let's give thanks for how it pictures the body and blood of Christ in which all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And how He made an offering for us on Calvary's tree to take away our sin. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood poured out to make atonement for us. So God our Father, we rejoice that You found in Your Son a dear Lamb of God to take away our sin, that You sent Him to be our sacrifice, to be slain for our crimes, that they might be punished in His body and in His blood so that we might go free, we who've trusted in Him. We thank You that the One in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells, our Lord Jesus, that He is represented before us with such common symbols, not with gold or silver or idols, but rather with bread and with wine, common things that are part of common everyday life that ought to always remind us of who our Savior is and what He did and how He is God manifest in the flesh for us. We thank You that He shed His blood to make atonement for our sin so that we might go free. And we thank You that He left us this cup to remind us that He left us these symbols to meet around, that He promises that He's with us here in spirit wherever we're gathered together. Help it soon to be that we will see Him face to face and be full of rejoicing and happiness forevermore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. 
And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 180 in the black book. The Lamb of God to slaughter led the King of glory see the crown of thorns upon His head. They nail Him to the tree. Number 180.